जय राधा बिहारे जय राधा For those of you who have your phones, you can turn so long to Srimad Bhagavatam, chapter, canto 1, chapter 11, text number 35. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Saesha Naralokesmin Avatirna Swamayaya Remaistri Ratna Kutasto Bhagavan Prakrito Yata Saesha Naralokesmin Avatirna Swamayaya Remaistri Ratna Kutasto Bhagavan Prakrito Yata Saesha Naralokesmin Avatirna Swamayaya Remaistri Ratna Kutasto Bhagavan Prakrito Yata Bhagavan Prakrito Yata Saisha Naralokesmin Bhagavan Prakrito Yata Ladies
Bhagavan Prakrito Yata Sa He, the Supreme Personality of Godhead Esha, all these Naraloke, on this planet of human beings Asmin, on this Avatirnaha, having appeared Swa, personal, internal Mayaya, causeless mercy Reme, enjoyed Sriratna, woman who is competent to become a wife of the Lord. Kurtasta, among Bhagavan, the personality of Godhead. Prakrita, mundane. Yata, as if it were. Translation That supreme personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna out of his causeless mercy, appeared on this planet by his internal potency and enjoyed himself amongst competent women as if he were engaging in mundane affairs. Purport. The Lord married and lived like a householder. This is certainly like a mundane affair, but when we learn that he married 16,108 wives and lived with them separately in each and every palace, certainly it is not mundane. Therefore, the Lord, living as a householder amongst his competent wives, is never mundane, and his behavior with them is never to be understood as mundane sex relation. The women who became the wives of the Lord are certainly not ordinary women, because to get the Lord as one's husband is the result of many, many millions of births of tapasya or austerity. When the Lord appears on different lokas or planets, or on this planet of human beings, he displays his transcendental pastimes just to attract the conditioned souls to become his eternal servitors, friends, parents and lovers respectively in the transcendental world, where the Lord eternally reciprocates such exchanges of service. Service is pervertedly represented in the material world and broken untimely, resulting in a sad experience. The illusion living being, conditioned by material nature, cannot understand out of ignorance that all our relations here in the mundane world are temporary and full of inebrieties. Such relations cannot help us be happy perpetually, but if the same relation is established with the Lord, then we are transferred to the transcendental world after leaving this material body and become eternally related with Him in the relation we desire. The women amongst whom He lived as their husband are not therefore women of this mundane world, but are eternally related with him as transcendental wives, a position which they attained by perfection of devotional service. That is their competency. The Lord is Param Brahma, or the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Conditioned souls seek after perpetual happiness in all places, not only on this earth, but also on other planets throughout the universe. Because constitutionally, a spiritual spark, as it is, can travel to any part of God's creation. But being conditioned by the material modes, he tries to travel in space by spacecraft and so fails to reach his destination. 
The law of gravitation is binding upon him like the shackles of a prison prisoner. By other processes, he can reach anywhere, but even if he reaches the highest planet, he cannot attain that perpetual happiness for which he is searching life after life. When he comes to his senses, however, he seeks after Brahman happiness, knowing it for certain that unlimited happiness which he is seeking is never attainable in the material world. As such, the Supreme Being, Param Brahman, certainly does not seek his happiness anywhere in the material world, nor can his paraphernalia of happiness be found in the material world. He is not impersonal. Because he is the leader and supreme being amongst innumerable living beings, he cannot be impersonal. He is exactly like us, and he has all the propensities of an individual living being in fullness. He marries exactly like us, but his marriage is neither mundane nor limited by our experience in the conditioned state. His wives, therefore, appear like mundane women, but factually, factually they are all transcendental liberated souls, perfect manifestations of internal energy. Om Gyanati Mirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurove Namaha Shri Chaitanya Manobhishtam Stabitam Yena Bhutale Swayam Rupagadamayam Dadati Swapadantikam Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yutapadakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavangscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatan Vitam Tam Sajivam Sadvaitam Savadutam Parijana Sahitam Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakan Vitangscha He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinabandhu Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostate Tapta Kanchana Gaurange Radhe Vrindavanishvare Vrishabhano Sutta Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vansha Kalpatarubhyascha Kripa Sindhubhya Evacha Patitanam Pavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namo Namaha Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadhadara Shri Vasari Ghora Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare That Supreme Personality of God, Sri Krishna, out of His causeless mercy, appeared on this planet by His internal potency and enjoyed Himself amongst competent women as if He were engaging in mundane affairs. In the prayers, the prayers of Queen Kunti, she describes that Lord Krishna is like an actor. He appears within this world like an actor, a well-dressed actor. And, uh, but it is difficult to understand what is, the, what is really happening with Krishna's pastimes. But uh, because there is this element where it looks very similar to what is happening in this world, is it? Uh, looks very similar. So for mo many people, they don't understand properly that uh, even though the Lord uh, is pastimes, it's extraordinary, uh, but many people consider it as mundane. There's some theories that Krishna is just uh, a special, very powerful king, uh, very extraordinary powerful, definitely. 
Um, but um, and even some people would say that the story of Krishna is a little exaggerated. But we see that the Bhagavatam, the vision that we get uh, through the disciplic succession, is this understanding that what we are seeing when we are experiencing or hearing about Krishna's pastimes, it is something that is revealed about what is happening uh, in the spiritual reality. So what is interesting is that even though Krishna is sometimes described to be an actor within this world, uh, the real people who are acting is us. Huh? That's, we are the real actors. Because we have taken on this costume, this costume, a temporary role. Not permanent, not permanent, not at all. We have walked onto a stage, the stage of the material world. And here we are sitting, and we have our role, we have been casted into a certain role, for a certain drama. For a certain period of time, we will play this role out. And it is amazing how uh, it definitely is like that. You can see that most people are acting, acting out an idea of what they think they should be. And there's a big difference usually between people's internal experience and between their, out, but between their external experience. Externally they act in a certain way, but internally they have a certain experience. And it's only with your very, very good friends that you can honestly speak to them honestly about what you're experiencing, isn't it? Like when we go up into our rooms and we're alone and the door is closed, then we speak freely about what's really happening, what is our real experience. But otherwise when we're here in public, then, you know, we, we, act, we act out a certain way, we're supposed to act in a certain way, do a certain thing. Um, but even in one sense, all the different relationships that we have uh, before we, unless it is connected with uh, Krishna consciousness, then all these relationships are just acts. It is just acting. Acting. One person acting like a man, another person acting like a woman, and then acting out a script. Uh, but you see, the problem with acts, the problem with acting, the problem with drama, is that uh, it is not real, it's not the real thing. Like if you would remember the movie The Truman Show, uh, remember The Truman Show? What an awesome movie, isn't it? Really deep, I mean that's, not all movies are good, but that's a good one. And we see in The Truman Show a story about a man who was uh, a whole world built around him that was not real, all for the sake of making a film of his life. And he was the only one who didn't know it wasn't real. And then he went through the whole experience and at a certain point he started to realize, but it's not real. And, and then his whole relationship with his wife, with his parents, with the whole thing, it started to become so, uh, he started to freak out basically, because he realized that this is not, it's not what I thought it was, it's not real, these people are just acting. Yeah? So interesting how uh, it, it shocks us to the core when we see that it's not really a real thing that is happening. But many of our relationships are like that. People act like our friends, they act like our husband, act like our wife, but really deep down there's a there's an incompatibility in all these relationships. Why is that? Because the impetus for any kind of relationship is that in one sense when people enter into a relationship with one another, they are taking shelter of one another. The living being is eternally looking for shelter. Not just physical security, but also, we need, we need uh, other living beings, we need relationships to have some kind of meaning, to have some kind of pleasure, to have some kind of identity even. That's what we're looking for. We need it. We take shelter of one another in order to obtain these things. But the problem is, is that one jiva cannot give shelter to another jiva. It's impossible. What can one jiva really do for another jiva? 
Both of them so tiny, so tiny. These tiny little specks of consciousness floating around within this massive ocean of material energy, being pushed and shoved around by the laws of this world, by the modes of material nature, which come like waves. It's interesting if you, if you see, uh, if you speak to an astrologer, astrologers are very interesting. I'm not an astrologer myself, but I used to live with one for many years. And he was very good, very, very mystical kind of personality. And uh, what is interesting is that astrology, in one sense, is like just like some people who read the weather. Huh? Like they can, based on the weather, they can see what's going to happen within the next few weeks, within a month. They can see certain weather patterns happening. And it's just it, these big forces that are moving around that are influencing us. But astrology is similarly is like a weatherman, but he's looking at the cosmic weather. Uh, he's not just looking at if it's going to rain this weekend. He's looking at what's happening with the planets, what's happening in the, in the bigger scheme of things. And in one sense, these modes of the astrology is like testing, taking, seeing how the modes of nature are, are, are moving. Because the modes of nature are always in flux. So we, we know that the material world is ex explained to be like an ocean. But what do we see in an ocean? We see in an ocean, an ocean is never stable. If you would go out to the deep sea, if you would ever have the opportunity to be out at deep sea, you will see that it's, sometimes it's, it's still, but oftentimes there's these waves. It's always, it's always bobbing, because there's all these movements that are moving in the ocean. Sometimes the waves can become massive, these massive waves that can come. Other times it looks a little quiet, but it's never static. Day by day, the ocean is always changing. So this whole material world is explained to be like an ocean. And the modes of nature are like these waves that come. And it's always sh shifting. And sometimes you just have these big waves that come in. Big waves. These big waves of ignorance. Big waves of passion. That just flood through the world. And just all living beings are hit by it. And it hits us all differently. But we're all affected by it. So similarly we can see that then two little jivas take shelter of one another. What can you do? What can you do? If this karma comes. If this heavy dose of karma comes. What can you really do for another person? So not so much. So that's why we see that that's one element where the, our material relationships are insufficient because we cannot adequately provide shelter for one another. Also, at the same point, we see that the real impetus behind uh, a relationship is also the qualities of the, of the other person. Some love. Love is something that arises when we are, the heart is touched. Uh, out of affection by the qualities of the other person. But at the same time, how deep can another person really touch you? Not so much. Because our standard is actually quite very high. We will see that. When you enter into a relationship, very difficult to be satisfied, even with your friends or with your family, with your children. Because our standard is very high. We want someone perfect. And a, a living being will al always uh, disappoint you. Because very tiny and filled with imperfections. So we see that then we are really the actors in this world, trying to act out these different material identities um, and sometimes becoming very serious about it. But uh, at a certain point, as Prabhupada says here, service is pervertedly represented in the material world. Yeah? So pervertedly represented, so not really the full deal, a little not sufficient. And above that, it is broken untimely, broken untimely. Even if we do get relationships that it's not perfect, but it's good enough. You know, it's actually working quite well. And we can become quite attached to one another, uh, quite attached. But the problem is then broken untimely. 
Because as the waves of the material nature explain that living beings are just like straws coming together in a river. For a little bit you can stay together, but then again forced apart by this strong current of the material energy that is shaping all of our destiny. And all our destiny is individual, unfortunately. So it is broken untimely. And then Prabhupada says what happens is, it results in a sad experience. Sad experience. Meaning that if we are all actors and we are acting out, uh, acting out some kind of a play, what kind of a play is it? Is it a comedy? It is, is it an action movie? No. It is a tragedy. That's what it is. We're all starring in a tragedy. Now tragedy is not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. Uh, because we see that Bharata Muni, who was the, the compiler of the, the Natya Shastra, the, the scripture that deals with drama, the science of drama. Very interesting how he would explain that all the different rasas can be evoked uh, through, through drama, through having a stage, different actors on the stage, and through having them enact in a certain way, in the audience is evoked some fear, some laughter, some anger, some concern. All these emotions can come forth from the heart. And these things are very important because uh, these emotions, they also nourish. It's, 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 it, it can heal us also. Uh, drama has something, has the potential to heal us. Because as we said, even our whole life is a kind of a drama. Uh, but he, and we see that even tragedy, tragedy has its purpose. Uh, tragedy, in one sense, even though it tastes, it tastes a little bitter, but just like the bitter taste, uh, like karela, sabji, which we get in such um, profuse supplies here in this temple, we see that karela is, is good for us, that bitter taste. Because by eating that bitter, it purifies the blood. Purifies the blood, and it's an important part of the balance. So similarly, this um, sadness that is there and inevitably there in the material world is there for a reason, because it purifies us. Uh, it purifies us and it allows us to take a certain distance, uh, becomes, uh, become a little detached from what is uh, experienced in this world. So very interesting that then the, the jiva, in one sense, we see that the Lord uh, in his household life, uh, especially in Krishna's pastimes in Dwarka, then Prabhupada explains that it is there that he sets the example. He sets the example for all living beings. So Krishna's pastimes are interesting because he does, he does two things at the same time. At the one time, he experiences his own pastimes because whatever he does, he loves it. Whatever he does, it's wonderful for him. It's a lot of fun. But at the same time, when he, when he enacts his pastimes in this world, he's also enacting it for the sake of others, for the sake of showing an example or teaching lessons by what he is doing. So he enacts his pastimes uh, as a householder and also for our sake because most, of, most living beings in the world will enter into household life because, not, not just because it is, you know, uh, whatever, a bad desire, but it is also natural. That's what we also see, that the natural condition of the spiritual world is household life. Huh? That's probably explains even in Vaikuntha. That's what we see, is that the men and women, they are in relationship, because Lord himself is also has these kind of relationships. But then the big distinction between household life in the material world and household life in the spiritual world or a spiritual householder is then the fact that the living beings are not trying to imitate the Lord, but are... Um, fully fixed in their identity as servants of the Lord and that all these relationships are uh, primarily based on that 
that one serves the Lord together as friends, as family members, as husband and wife or whatever it is. So the Lord basically enters into this world, shows us the example of how to spiritualize all these different relationships um, by having Him in the center. And in that way, um, whatever the act is that we are doing, whatever our identity, whether we're acting as a Brahmana, acting as a Chatriya, acting as a husband, acting as a wife, whatever the temporary identity it is that we take on in this world, and that way, by connecting it to Krishna, by connecting it to Dharma, even though it is a temporary identity, it becomes meaningful. It becomes meaningful because it takes you closer to Krishna. And one has the potential to please Krishna by that. You see? You might not be a mother forever, but you can please Krishna as a mother by taking care of your children, seeing them as connected to Krishna. You might not be a husband forever, but you can please Krishna by being a husband. If you take care of your family in that understanding and try to bring them closer to Krishna. You might not be a Brahmana forever, who knows what you will be in your next life. But if you, become, if you are a Brahmana in this life, you can guide society closer towards Krishna, closer towards this ultimate goal. And in that way you can please Krishna. So that's what we see, that these identities, they are temporary, but they can become meaningful. Not, not bad in and of itself. They are meaningful because we can use them uh, in a way to please Krishna. Um, even within this world. Now it's very amazing how the Lord chose to um, portray His pastimes in this world. We see here that even though He lived like a, a normal person, but in one sense, how normal was it? He had 16,108 wives. Yeah? And for each of them, He built a palace in Dwarka, which was about 96 square miles, I believe. Probably even gives the measurements. The city of Dwarka was this, this massive island of the coast, of the western coast of India. And uh, he built the city of Dwarka after um, he was attacked by uh, Jarasandha and uh, Kalayavana at a certain point. They attacked uh, Mathura at the same time together. And then Krishna said, oh, this is getting too much. Uh, my uh, citizens are, it's too stressful to live here. Everybody is coming to attack us. So then he moved the city out to Dwarka built a wonderful city there and uh, it was quite amazing if we read about it. So many palaces for each wife and as Prabhupada says here, the big, um, the clincher, sort of the real, the real thing that makes it clear that this was not something ordinary, is that Krishna could live with each of them separately at the same time. Explained how he, was, he would expand himself in all these different forms and then in the morning he would wake up, it's quite a scene that is explained, in the morning he would wake up he would perform his religious duties, he would spend some time at home, and then what he would do is every day as a king, because how the king is just like in today, you have to go to parliament. Uh, every day that's the job as a ruler. You think that you're the king, you can do what you want to. No, no, if you're the king, you have to work very hard. Just like the president, he's working harder than everyone. Uh, so a list of, of presidents in the world, do they say, how many of them, like all of them, most of them, so some statistics, wake up before 4.30 in the morning, presidents. Otherwise, it's not possible to be a president of a country. You can't run a country and not wake up early. It's a lot of work, a lot of strain. So interesting how uh, to be such a ruler, it's quite some work. So Krishna also, every day he would go to work and he would go to this amazing assembly house that was built. Uh, that was built. And there he would sit with all the kings and his ministers and they would make their decisions. So he would come from his homes, from these 16,000 palaces. 
He would walk out, and then all these different forms of Krishna would walk, 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 and they would all be walking from the different areas, and then they would sort of congregate close to the assembly house, and then before he enters the assembly, all 16,000, they become one. And then he walks into the assembly house. It must have been quite a scene every morning, you know, you can imagine that. It would be a great, make a great scene in a movie, huh? Jeez, they were really cool. So, uh, we see that then, yeah, Krishna, even though he acts normal, but it's obviously not normal. I mean, what he is doing is extraordinary. And uh, it is then clear for the devotees that what we are seeing is not something from this world. And uh, we see that the supernatural nature of Krishna's pastimes is not just based on his wonderful activities, the things that he does, you know, that he can expand himself in so many features or you know, bold a city just on the, on the water, such a big place in such a short span of time, or all these kind of uh, more external amazing things that he does um, that is visible to the centers. But the real extraordinary nature of Krishna's pastimes, the real thing that makes um, his activities within this world, uh, what makes it totally different than the material reflections, is the emotional dynamics that actually exist between himself and his devotees, hmm? which will be explained here in this next verse. How even though these queens were so beautiful, he had so many queens and they were so beautiful, but Krishna was not at all, Krishna's senses was not at all agitated by it. And Prabhupada says here in the purport that that is the unique feature of Krishna, that um, he himself is not at all attracted by external beauty. These are not the things that actually capture his heart, external wealth, Krishna has supremely renounced, supremely renounced. He is completely, completely renounced uh, from everything. Why is that? That is also why he can give the living beings their full freedom. Because he is completely unattached to them, completely unattached to what they do in one sense. He will allow them to do whatever they want to. He will never force his will, never force his will onto another living being. Which is, takes quite some self-control. If you're so powerful, if you're so powerful, not to force your will onto another living being it requires great detachment. Because we see in this world, if someone just gets a little bit of power, how much he wants to control everyone, isn't it? We've, we've all experienced it. Your boss or, you know, your, a school headmaster or whatever it is. Just a little bit of power. A little bit. Just a little bit of power. And then they immediately want to control other people. And control and manipulate them. So how unique Krishna is. So powerful. But completely... Uh, completely allowing everyone to just go at their own destiny, right? to follow their own desires and uh, give them that space to just be who they are. So we see that that is unique in Krishna, that he has this detachment within him. And uh, we see that then in the relationships that exist within this world, generally people enter into relationships because there is some mutual benefit. Uh, you get, if you get a beautiful wife, it's nice, it looks good. Everybody thinks, wow, look at this guy, he's cool. You know, he can post pictures of it on Facebook. If you get a rich husband, it's nice because you know, you're going to have security, you don't have to worry about money, and it's like, Phew, it's, a, it's a big stress off your mind. Even though you don't like him that much, it's okay. I mean, he has a lot of money, so I can tolerate you know, his uh, stupid jokes or whatever it is. So we see that how in this world it's always a little mixed. There's some love, but it's also there's some personal convenience, some material benefit that comes, and that's why we accept these relationships. Uh, but for Krishna, nothing. He can get nothing. No one can give him anything in the relationship. He's completely self-satisfied. 
He has everything. He can make whatever he wants to with his internal energy. So his relationship dynamics are completely different. A prophet says here in the next prophet, he says that the only thing that Krishna gets, uh, why is it then that Krishna enters into a relationship? Because these queens, they satisfied him by their sincere affection and their service. So very fascinating. That for Krishna, that's the one thing you can give him. Voluntarily to serve him. Then you, have, you can give something to him. And then he will reciprocate from that service. But there's nothing else you can give him. No, no other benefit he can get from you. Only this thing, this natural propensity to try to serve him and to please him. Um, and in that way, that is really the bond that is connecting Krishna with his devotees. So such a fascinating part of the Bhagavatam that we're reading here, seeing how um, Krishna manifests within this world and the variety of uh, things he accomplished just by being here and showing us this example an example to live within this world that we all follow and at the same time also uh, a glimpse into what is actually happening in the spiritual reality where we are going so how fascinating that is why Krishna is explained to be Daksha very expert because with what, everything that he does he performs a variety of goals Nothing he does is just one. No, if he does one thing, it, it does many, many things. Whatever he does. So how wonderful Krishna is. Okay, are there any questions or any comments or anything that has been said today? Sundarabhu. <laughs> Yeah, we can, I guess, yeah. He does definitely, you mean like he follows the normal, what do you mean with norms? The norms of the material world, yeah. That is, the, that is explained to be, uh, like we see that Lord Brahma, that was the most bewildering aspect of Krishna. One of the bewildering aspects of Krishna is how, even though he is God, how he still abided by the rules and the norms of this world, yeah, which make him even more difficult to understand because he goes with it. It's very fascinating. It's interesting also if you see the Mahabharata war, for example, how Krishna determined the outcome of the war, but very subtly, very subtly, very subtly. He was controlling it, but in a very subtle way. Not that he would, you know, he could, he could have just, for example, everybody could assemble, everybody went, the first day when they assembled on the battlefield, Krishna could have just told Arjuna, oh, you don't want to fight? And then he could have just said, okay, everyone die. And then everybody on the other side, they could have just fell dead and then the war would have been over and then they could have just gone home. Yeah? So he could have done something like that. But you see, he didn't do it like that at all. He didn't even lift up a weapon at all. It was like everything was going on and he was just in a very smooth, subtle way. And that's why even now you can look at it and you're not sure, was it Krishna that made them win the war or not? It's not clear because in one sense he wasn't so actively participating. So that's interesting with Krishna that he hides, he hides his uh, transcendental nature um, exactly in this way by oftentimes acting according to the norms of society. We see also when he killed Kamsa, 
He killed Kamsa, which was a big thing because Kamsa was his uncle. That's like, phew, in Vedic society, to kill one of your family members, that's a very serious thing. We see also that in the beginning of the uh, Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata war, that was Arjuna's big concern also, you know, that I now have to fight against my family members, which is something very severe. So we see that then Krishna, he was, uh, when he entered the wrestling arena, Kamsa's there, and then he killed Kamsa. And then Kamsa's brothers, they came rushing out to avenge their father. They came rushing to Krishna. And then Krishna was thinking, oh, I mean, I've already killed one of my uncles. You know, I can't kill more. I can't kill all of them. That is just too much. Because it's just, you know, it's not proper etiquette. So then he looked at Balaram and he said, okay, you take them. It's yours. Because Balaram was not related to them. You know, he was just the half-brother of Krishna. He, did not, he, he was not related to Kamsa. So, yeah, interesting how the Lord... He still somehow takes into consideration the norms of society and he, and he goes with it a little bit. Um, yeah, fascinating point. Thank you, Bruno. Anything else? Any other questions? Any other comments? Yes, Bruno. Yeah. Interesting question, yeah. You see, where is it? it's in this chapter, huh? I think it's in the beginning of this, beginning of this chapter where it explained that as Krishna entered into his city of Dwarka, then everyone came to greet him. All the citizens of Dwarka came to greet him, including, including various prostitutes. Uh, the prostitutes of Dwarka, they came. They also came to greet the Lord. And the first time you read it, you're like, what? Because when we get into Krishna consciousness, we have this understanding, Vedic society is the perfect society, perfect civilization. Everything is perfect. Vedas are perfect, and Vedic society is perfect. So how do prostitutes fit into a perfect society? Well, the perfection of Vedic society within the, in this world is interesting because Vedic society is perfect because it deals with everything completely. Hmm? We see that there is the Vedas describe how to perform war. But war is very horrible. A horrible thing. But the Vedas describe how to perform war. Why is it? Because in this world there will be war. So one can do it in such a way that it becomes perfect. It becomes perfect because now you do it according to religious principles. And then everybody, no one has to suffer any sinful reactions. And they can still move forward spiritually. We see that the Vedas describe to us what to do at the time of death. But death is very horrible. Death is, death is itself an imperfection. But everybody in this world will die. So we see that religion deals with the fact that there is inherent imperfections in this world. And religion allows us to deal with that. Instead of trying to think that you can solve it, it allows us to deal with it in a way that becomes uh, uh, beneficial. The worst wars in this world has been fought to end war. To end war. The worst wars that we have seen in this world was World War I and World War II in the, least, in the recent span of time. And what made these wars so heavy? Because it was total war. The idea was that 
They were thinking that if we crush these people entirely, then we will stop war. Because this is the problem. We see that the worst wars have been fought for what they call utopianism. Someone comes and says, I will build a perfect war. I will build a perfect world. I will build you a perfect world. The communist, that was the idea. We will create a perfect world. A world with perfect harmony and peace. But for the sake of a perfect wo world, we just have to kill a few million people. So then you make the calculation. You say, okay, that's okay. It's not too bad. We're going to have a perfect world. So even if we have to kill a few million people to do it, it's not so bad because it balances out at the end. Yeah? So we see that the worst, some of the worst crimes in human history have been performed for the sake of utopianism, for the sake of building a perfect world. Similarly, we can see that how many animals are being horribly uh, treated in scientific experiments. How do they justify it? Because they say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, before you judge us for what we do to these animals, you have to understand that one day we will stop disease. Now, if you can stop disease, okay, then a few animals have to have some pain in between. So that's okay because, you know, we will stop disease. So if some animals have to suffer, it's not so bad because at the end it is worth it. You know, you see, we will build, we will end disease. So that's okay. So we see that the Vedic society, religious society, they actually don't work like that. They say this world is inherently imperfect. There will inherently be disease. There will inherently be death. There will inherently be disaster. There will inherently be war. We're not going to stop it. So instead of trying to stop it, you do it in a way that becomes religiously beneficial. You connect it. So you don't stop war. You don't stop death. You accept it. You embrace it. That it is part of the world. Similarly, then, prostitution is also like that. Modern-day prostitution is very interesting because it is, very bad. it is a very unfortunate position to be in. Very unfortunate. Very unfortunate because it is, uh, generally it is coupled with substance abuse, violence. Most, most prostitutes are subjected uh, to, um, oftentimes, they can get into all kinds of trouble because they're dealing with a very low, lower section of society. So we see that it's a very dangerous position to be in. So many diseases that can come from that profession. But uh, if we would look at the ancient world, if you have ever read a book, there's an interesting book uh, called Memoirs of a Geisha. You ever read that book? Heard of that book? Anyone? Memoirs of a Geisha? It tells the story of a, ge of a Geisha, which was a, a form of a, a Japanese prostitutes in feudal Japan. And the story of how they were, so they were called courtesans, practically prostitutes, the same thing as a prostitute. So they would enter into relationship with higher class men, but not for the sake of, it was, it was basically a prostitution relationship, but completely different, governed by all kinds of social etiquettes and rules, something done in a very high class way, but still a prostitute. Yeah? So similarly, we see that it will always be there because sexual appetite of men for many men will always be greater than what can be fulfilled by one woman. And then Prabhupada said that's why, that's why there will always be a class of prostitution. Because where there, is a, where there is a demand, there will be a supply. Where there is a need, there will be a supply for it. So Vedic culture then instead of hiding away, yes, fulfill it. But do it in a specific way. I can tell you one thing, the prostitutes of Dwarka, they were not shooting up heroin or you know, being subjected to heavy domestic abuse or having to suffer from whatever the diseases are that comes from this business. No, because it was 
practically a prostitute, but something of a much higher nature, more like a courtesan, something that was governed by all kinds of social etiquettes and rules to make it, even though it's not a good thing, but to make it something at least as good as it can be, make it something to protect people. So that's an interesting feature of Vedic culture, that it takes things which are bad and protects it and lifts it up so that at least from the perspective of your next life, yeah, that even in this life you might be a prostitute, but in your next life you will get a better destination. So that's interesting. You might be fight a war, which is not a good position, but at least in your next life you will go to a better destination. So that, because the Vedic culture has this more broader perspective of thinking about the long-term growth of human beings, they can deal with the harshness and with the bad things in the society in a way that at least benefits the individual, which our society has completely lost. Yeah, completely. How many scientists will be going to hell in their next life for what they have done to animals in this life? Yeah. So they are thinking that they are creating a perfect society, but in their next life they will suffer like anything for what they have done. Yeah. How many people have fought wars thinking that I will fight war? Joseph Stalin, for the sake of building a communist utopia, killed about 40 million of his own citizens. But he was thinking he was building a perfect war. He was thinking he was doing something good. But what will happen to him? Where will he go in his next life? So that's then the distinction between uh, a godless society and, a, and a, a godly society. Is that a godly society, the perfection is not that you will make this world a perfect place. The perfection is, is that at the end, uh, everybody is being lifted up, brought closer and closer to spiritual life. And that is the real criteria by which we judge it. So yeah, what a, what a radically different approach to life. Um, that we see, and takes it, but takes a little, takes a little thinking about it, and especially as we also are now building a new society. Yeah? We're seeing also that in Krishna consciousness that we are now trying to build a new society, but not so simple to think how exactly to do it, because the problem is, is not everybody will be pure devotees. If everybody is pure devotees, it's very easy to build a nice society, but because everybody is not pure devotees, it becomes a little tricky how to balance everything out. And the Vedic culture gives us, uh, show, gives us an interesting way in which they managed to do that, uh, including that there was some prostitutes, some other things also. Any other questions? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. That's the point, yeah. The various desires. There's an interesting part in uh, the story of Lord Prithu. So there is explained, Prophet says how the different qualities of Lord Prithu is described. It says, Prithu. He is like the sun and the moon. Yeah. Like, like the sun, he is very harsh. Very harsh. The sun is explained to be Krura, a harsh planet. Even though the sun is the planet of Dharma, the source of truth and light and these things, but at the same time, the sun is harsh. Yeah. The sunshine, when the sunshine beats down on you, you can feel. The sun is giving life, but the sun is also very hot, yeah. very exacting, 
can become very heavy. So that's how dharma is. Dharma is very heavy. People think they like justice, but justice is very heavy. So that's how the sun is. But then there is the moon, which is very cooling. Uh, very cooling, very nourishing. Uh, so the moon doesn't cause any disturbance. The moon just nourishes. In fact, Prabhupada says that the, the moonlight is what nourishes the juice of life in all, f in all plants. They are nourished by the moonlight. So uh, Prabhupada explains that Lord Prithu is like the sun and the moon. So on the one hand, very heavy, very exacting, very just. But on the other side, also very merciful, very caring, very giving. And then Prabhupada says, the interesting purpose, he says that part of the responsibility of the king is to fulfill the material desires of his citizens. Very interesting. Part of spiritual, part of the position of a leader, you cannot just, just tell a people, I will give you the opportunity to perform devotional service and I will give you nothing else because all your other desires are material and they're horrible. No, no, no. It can't work like that because then you cannot really build a society. Then you can, have a, a, you can have a few little people who can maybe follow that program. But who can do that? So we see that the real form of the leader is, is that he has a responsibility to fulfill everyone's desires as far as he can. You know? Obviously you have to see that sinful desire you have to eradicate. You should not allow sinful desire in your society because then becomes impossible. But even in the whole realm of pious desire, which is things like karmakanda, jnana, yoga, it's not sinful things. It is, it's pious desires in one sense, you know. So we see that the, the, the king, he has a responsibility to see that everybody can fulfill, them, can fulfill whatever pious desires they have. He has to see that they can fulfill it. So very interesting how there's these two aspects to our philosophy. And even in the Bhagavatam philosophy, it's very harsh because it explains to you all these other things are useless ultimately. Not going to get you there. Karma, Gyan, Yoga is not going to give you love of God. So on the one hand, very harsh. But at the same time, the Vedic scriptures explain to you exactly how to do it. And it allows you, if you want to do it, here's how you do it. So we see that then, when it comes to dealing with people, and also dealing with ourselves, you need both these kind of energies. You, know? you need this, this, this heavy energy of what is real, and little strict discipline. And on the other hand, you need some nourishment, some mercy, some kindness, working with people where they are. So both these things have to be there, the sun and the moon. Otherwise you will become imbalanced. Too much moon, then you get an indulgent society. You can just do whatever you want to. You can see with kids. Kids can become spoiled. You just allow them to do whatever they want to do. They become completely spoiled, completely useless. There's a story of how one man, Robert tells, that uh, he went to court, he went to jail for murder. And at his court case, his mother was there. And he was tried for murder. Because his life was, like many criminals, started with some theft and then some robbery and then got worse and worse and then at a certain point he killed a man in some kind of a robbery thing. He killed a man and then he, and then he was sent to, to death. He got a death sentence. But his mother was there in the court. And then at the end he asked if he could embrace his mother uh, just because he's going to die now. So then he went, I think it was either his mother or his auntie, but the person, who, the person who raised him. And then when she came closer, then he bit off her ear. Uh, he bit off her ear because he told her that it's your fault. It's your fault that I'm hanging today yeah? because you didn't, you didn't perform your duty of disciplining me. I mean, interesting point that Robert said, that it's your fault. You just allowed me to do, you allowed me to come to this point where I'm now going to get hanged. So we see that just indulging doesn't work. And at the same time, just exacting, yeah? just that sun, just that solar energy, just that heavy, uh, the idea of what is just and what is right. And only doing that without any consideration for the individual and for working with people where they are, that also won't work because then we burn out everyone. Huh? 
see what happens. Someone becomes burnt out. That's what it means. It means you're, you're, clean, you're trying to do something that is perhaps out of your goal, or you're trying to push people to act on a level that is not realistic, then you burn them out. So fascinating how these two things have to work together. And uh, therefore, by reading Krishna's pastimes, the only way in which we can learn these things is not from a textbook or not by studying the science. In, in the only way to learn it is to see it in action. To see it in action. To see it, to learn it from a person. That's really how all learning takes place, is to see it from a person. So for example, you can read about Krishna and you see how Krishna is both. Very kind and also very heavy. When you read Krishna's pastimes, you see what Krishna likes. For example, you see Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He, Krishna himself, who came, and on the one hand, so merciful. So merciful. God, he was so, so freely distributing love of God to anyone. So merciful. But then at the same time, we saw how he dealt with Chota Haridas. Yeah? Chota Haridas who just looked lustfully at a woman. But he was a Ranshit. Right? He was a sannyasi. Looked lustfully at a woman. And Lord Chaitanya never spoke to him again. And then all the devotees even became afraid. They saw how heavy Lord Chaitanya's reaction was. And they all stopped speaking to women, even in their dreams. All the devotees are like completely, they're like, okay, poof, they're just, just looking at the feet, you know, not even speaking to anyone. So Lord Chaitanya, interesting how he's both, you know, both very heavy and at the same time very kind. Because that same Lord Chaitanya, when he, when Srivas Thakur got children, he was in ecstasy. Huh? He was in, when his householder disciples got, got kids, he was so happy for them. Huh? Why is that? So we see that he deals with individuals wherever they are. Different people are dealt with differently. So Prabhupada is in a similar example of a person who embodies all these different qualities. Yeah? Prabhupada can be so exacting, so demanding. His books, his purports are so uncompromising when you read it. It's like whenever you read Prabhupada's books, you have to be a little bit ashamed isn't it? Because of where you are, of the fact that how far we have to go to be able to live up to the standard that he is writing about. But at the same time, when we saw how Prabhupada dealt with people, so kind, so kind. The story of Madhudvisa Swami, I think it, I don't know if it's him, one of Prabhupada's early disciples, Sanyas disciples, he was a sanyasi for many years, but then he left the movement. Uh, some difficulty, he left, he got married, completely gave up his vows, and then a long time later, Prabhupada was always trying to meet him. Prabhupada was still writing that Prabhupada tried his best to somehow or other meet him. And then at some point they came together. He's, he came to Prabhupada with his new wife. So you have to imagine. You know? The Vedic scripture, they call a sannyasi who gives up his vow. What do they call him? A vantasi. What does that mean? A vomit eater. Huh? You, you vomit something out, you renounce something, and then you eat it again. So very horrible position to be in from the Vedic scripture perspective. So then he came to Prabhupada, and then Prabhupada was so happy to see him. So happy to see him. And immediately just allowed him back and tried to again find a way for him to be engaged in devotional service. And he was so amazed. He said, Prabhupada, how could you do this? He says, I'm, I've, I've done such a, I've broken all my vows. I've broken my vows. And here you so kindly accept me back. And then, Prabhupada, and then he says that Lord Chaitanya, he was so heavy. But then Prabhupada explains that, yes, Lord Chaitanya, he was God. He could be very heavy. But he said that I, I am just an insignificant person. If someone comes to help me, I am very grateful for whatever help they can give me. So in that way, we see that 
how Prabhupada had both, both these sides to his personalities. And we also have to learn to develop both these sides. Because that's what it means to be a Vaishnava. It means that one becomes expert. And part of becoming expert is, uh, is becoming well balanced. And you become well balanced by being able to have these opposite, th these opposite things, these two things that are very different. To be able to accommodate both of them within your personality. To accommodate both of them in the way in which you deal with people. And in that way, you become a fully balanced human being. And if you have only, if only have one or the other, then there will be some disbalance. And then also it will be difficult to please Krishna. Because we see that Krishna is pleased when we follow his example. So we have to also learn how to do both these things. Um, and uh, by meditating on the example set by the devotees and by the Lord himself, that is the way in which we can gradually start to, uh, to develop these wonderful qualities. Okay, it is 9 o'clock. We will end right here. Grantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Srila Prabhupada Ki Nitai Go Premanande